I heard a loud voice. It was coming from the throne, and it said, See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. God will be with them. God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, Lord, in thy sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I believe in, I have faith in, I trust the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. The creed, this ever new and yet ancient affirmation of our faith, it stands as this witness to who we are, whose we are. I believe in God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the interconnectivity of the church and the saints. I believe in the upending power of forgiveness. I believe that this life is not all that there is. It's interesting, I think, that without the end of the creed, there would be no creed at all. That is, it's all good and fine to worship the God who makes things, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, the Spirit moving, mercy, koinonia, all this stuff. But if there's no resurrection of the body, everything falls apart. If there's no Easter, then none of us would be here doing what we're doing right now. Perhaps you've noticed there's a strange thing that happens in the Gospels. Every time Jesus encounters someone, Jesus is always teaching and preaching and healing. We don't talk about a lot of the healings. Someone encounters Jesus, the blind start to see, the sick are cured, the paralytics walk, and then almost every single time at the end of a miraculous moment, Jesus says to the person now cured, shh, don't tell anybody. Have you ever noticed that Jesus is this secret keeper? He does amazing things, and he says, I don't want anybody to know about it. Which means either Jesus really wanted everything to remain a secret, or Jesus knew the best way to spread a story is tell people, don't tell anybody what happened. Either way, over and over again, people who encounter Jesus are different afterward than they were before. Some are healed. Some receive wisdom, most leave scratching their heads. When the inner circle of disciples, they go up to the Mount of Transfiguration, they see Jesus transfigured, they see the, the figures of Moses and Elijah. After this moment, Jesus says to these disciples, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. We call it the Messianic secret. Why does Jesus want it all to stay quiet? Why doesn't Jesus want anyone to know what happened until Easter? Well, because the resurrection is what makes everything in the gospel intelligible. Without the resurrection, everything else falls apart. The promise of the resurrection, it gives the disciples, all of us, the strength to live according to everything Jesus says. It gives us the hope for things not yet seen. It gives us patience to bear with one another as the church. Paul says, if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile and we are stuck in our sins. 
If there's no resurrection, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And just as all die in Adam, all will be made alive in Christ. The resurrection is everything. And yet, according to one of my professors, Richard Hayes, this doctrine is more misunderstood and neglected than any other. The doctrine of the bodily resurrection. At the beginning of Lent every year, we have a service at the church in this room. We gather together early in the morning, late in the evening. We sing songs, we say a few prayers, we read scripture, someone preaches, and then we have the imposition of ashes. The beginning of Lent is Ash Wednesday. On Ash Wednesday, I take ashes and I mark everybody in the sign of the cross and I say the words that we've all heard so many times before, you are dust and to dust you shall return. It's notable that the, the sign on the forehead is the cross. We have a cruciform faith. We cannot escape the cross no matter how much we would like. We have a cross on the wall. We have a cross in our logo. We have one on a big stick over here to the left. Some of us wear crosses around our necks. Some of us have them tattooed on our body. Our architecture is cruciform. The sanctuary is a cross. So when you come to receive communion, when you come to receive Baptism, you are standing in the heart of the cross. You cannot get away from it, no matter how much you would like to. And on Ash Wednesday, we put them on our foreheads. A few years ago, after an early morning Ash Wednesday service, I went about the rest of my day as if nothing had happened, save for the smeared ashen cross on my own forehead that I had imposed without looking. I had to go by the grocery store after the service. I got in line. And the cashier, after ringing me up, she looked right at my forehead and she said, that's terrible. Why would you want to be reminded of your death? And it was a moment that I thought without speaking. I know no, none of you know what that's like. She said, that's terrible. Why would you want to be reminded of your death? And my response was, I don't want to be reminded of my death. I need to be. And the man behind me in line said, Amen. And when I looked over my shoulder, he had a cross on his forehead too. He understood the message. Contrary to certain opinions, we are not an escapist faith. We don't try to pretend as if life isn't what it really seems like. The season of Lent, it forces us to look into the darkness of the world, the darkness of our own making. There are real, tactile, tangible ramifications for what we believe. What we believe shapes how we behave, and we have an embodied faith. Our bodies matter. They're important, but these bodies don't last forever. And we try. We try really hard to deny that one fundamental truth. We buy creams that promise to erase all of our wrinkles. We adopt diets that promise to erase our waistlines. We establish endowments so that should we ever not make it through this life alive, at least someone will remember us when we're gone. Jesus Christ Superstar actually got this right. I love Jesus Christ Superstar. It is so good. Always knew that I'd be an apostle. I knew that I would make it if I try. 
And then when we retire, we can write the gospel so they'll still talk about me when I die. But no matter what we do, and no matter what we try, and we do try, we cannot escape from the end. We cannot get out of the bell that tolls for all of us. And not even the Bible provides much of a respite. The Bible is full of death. The waters recede after the flood, the valley of the dry bones. Death is everywhere in the Bible. It's not just on the nightly news that we're confronted with the fragility of existence. It's in the book. And we tend to be silent about it. Consider how difficult it is for us to talk candidly about death, even with those who are so close to the end of life. Consider how uncomfortable a great many of you might be this morning hearing so much about death on a Sunday morning in church. Consider the preacher who agonized over these words this week, who is wondering right now, whose idea was it for this sermon series? So we don't talk about death. And I think mostly we don't talk about death because we want to pretend like it won't happen. Death threatens our speech. It paralyzes our ability to communicate. Or worse, death sometimes compels us to say things that are the exact opposite of the gospel. I cannot tell you how many times I've been at a graveside where I've had to console a family, not because of who's in the grave, but because of the things that were said while they were at the grave. Things like, God just wanted another little angel in heaven. Everything happens for a reason. They're in a better place. And we say those things not because they make the people who receive them feel comforted. We say those things to make us feel better because we don't know what to say when we're in front of death. Now, of course, to some extent it is true that the dead are now in a better place. But when we say those words, we tend to use it in reference to something like the transmigration of the soul. That is, at the moment of someone's death, their soul leaves their body and now they can now be found in the babbling brook or the gentle breeze or the tears running down our cheek. We've convinced ourselves that our souls are more important than our bodies. That God will whisk us away to that other better place, which implies that everything about this place is wrong and broken and flawed. God has to take us somewhere else where everything is right and fixed and perfect. But that's not the gospel. I mean, it's pretty close. But it's not the gospel. Because the Christian faith is not just about the soul. It's about our bodies. Our humanity, the world with which we are created, the world that's redeemed. We don't need to knock materiality. You know who invented it? God. When John was reading from John, did you hear? I saw a new heavens and a new earth. That's important. I saw a new earth. These new things are not replacements for the old ones. They are transfigurations of them. God is redeeming what is here for what is in the future. 
God makes the world and everything out of nothing. Remember the beginning of this year that happened five years ago where it feels like that? God makes everything out of nothing. God can take death and make something new out of it. God raises us out of our deaths, not out of some spiritual netherworld. The resurrection of the dead is actually better than the immortality of the soul because it's the great declaration that matter matters. I mean, consider all the time that Jesus waxes lyrical about the kingdom of heaven, when he tells these stories, they're in decisively earthly terms. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast mixed into flour. The kingdom of heaven is like a party with food and drinks and dancing. Consider on Easter, when Jesus himself is resurrected from the grave, he returns to the disciples embodied. One of his first questions is, do you have anything to eat? He embraces them. At first they don't recognize him, but when they break bread together, when they sit down at the table and they feast together, their eyes are open to who he is. Consider the whole story of Acts. The church grows, leaps and bounds, not because they say, by the way, when you die, don't worry about it, your spirit's going to go somewhere else. They take seriously that we live in a material world and how sharing goods like food and shelter and money can make life better for other people. That's why the church grew. You know what we say in the Lord's Prayer? On earth as it is in heaven. We do what we do now in anticipation of what will come. We live according to God's future, the new heaven and the new earth right now, which means whatever heaven is, whatever the resurrection of the body is, it will be like this. Just a little different. The faithful life is a fleshly life. You know what we call the church? The body of Christ. We don't call it the spirit of Christ. We don't call it the soul of Christ. We call it the body of Christ. We use water to baptize. We use bread and cup to commune with God. The spirit through baptism joins us together to be Christ's resurrected body. God can take even our dry bones and our dust and enliven them into the one through whom and for whom we are made. Ultimately, that's why we don't have to be afraid of death. Christ has already gone to death ahead of us that it might not be the end of us. We cling to the Lord in this life and the life to come because his life makes our lives possible. Our bodies are not nobodies. We are somebodies. We belong to Jesus. When I graduated from seminary and I was sent to my first church, they sort of warn people right out of seminary. They say, hey, just prepare yourselves because your very first day you're at your church, somebody's going to die. I heard it a long time before I got out of seminary. They said, prepare yourself. Somebody will die your first day and you're going to have to do a funeral the very first week here at your church. So I arrived at my first church and the first day, nobody died. The first week, nobody died. I made it through a month. Nobody died. I made it through an entire year without anybody dying in my church. Because I am a miracle! <laughs> but then the bell tolled. 
and I had to do my very first funeral. Fortunately, I had been to a lot of funerals. My parents took seriously that when you're part of the church, you go to people's funerals, even if you don't know them very well. I grew up going to funerals. So I knew what was supposed to be said. I kind of had a feel for it. I knew what songs we could sing, what scriptures we could ring. I had an idea about what I could do with the homily because I knew the woman pretty well. But what I didn't think about, what I didn't anticipate, was what we did at the very end of her funeral service because we all got in our cars and we started driving to the cemetery. And I realized I'd never been to a graveside service before. They didn't teach me about that in seminary. I had the good fortune, though, of being in my car for a long time because the, bur- the funeral was in Stanton, but the burial was actually down here in Roanoke. So I got in the car and had to drive all the way to Stan- from Stanton to Roanoke, and I had the whole car ride to think, what am I going to do when we get there? I'm wearing the dress. Everyone's going to look to me to say something. What do you say at the grave? This moment of finality. And so we stood around her casket. I offered some prayers. We read some scripture. And then I asked everyone to be silent. To just pray and give thanks to God for the time we had with this woman. And we just stood there for a bit. And then I felt the Holy Spirit elbow me in the rib cage. And I started to sing. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. And the son of the woman said, how did you know that was my mom's favorite song? I didn't. But the Holy Spirit did. And so over the last 10 years, I've use the words of that song at every funeral I've done for a couple reasons one because it's a good song two because it's my favorite and three because it's true God will make God's home here with us the new heaven the new earth And in that new home, there will not be any mourning, no more crying, no more weeping. Death will be no more because God will make all things new. I offer this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.